And in Ephesians chapter 2 is where we will be. There are two things in, uh, in faith or in Christianity. Uh, one we often hear of is called orthodoxy. The other, we don't hear it as much as orthopraxy. Ortho means right, like orthopedic, right? Uh, praxy is, is practice, and doxy is right, right glory, right belief. So a part of being a Christian is orthopraxy, doing the right thing. The other part is orthodoxy, which is believing the right thing. And so a lot of times in books, like in Ephesians, the beginning will be orthodoxy, what we need to believe, before they'll pivot to now that we know these things, let's talk about how we got to do this in real life. The Bible is very, uh, very cool in this way is it can, e- it can be easy in Christianity or in faith just to make it very much about what we believe or a cool inspirational moment we had in our thoughts or in our heart. But the Bible is highly practical. Um, even, uh, even in 1 Corinthians on that great passage about love uh, that we like so much, one of the very next things he says, actually it's, it's the love part in 13 and then in 15 about the resurrection. The very next sentence after the resurrection in chapter 15 which is the beginning of 16, is now let's talk about that cash that the church is going to provide for this church that needs help right now. And so there's, there's a very real practical in the Bible. This cannot just be some thing we believe. It has to take root in the here and now. And it has to give birth to real life action or else it really has, there's really no, there's no truth in it if it's just a philosophy. It has to, it has to actually click and drag into our, our personal and, and public walks with God. And this is something that churches have, have begun to notice quite a bit, actually. Uh, and we've talked, we're, that's why our theme for this year is the fullness of, of Christ. This theme, this idea of we actually are going to strive to get to know Jesus in as many ways as we can so that we can actually be the example we're calling others to and to actually see those in our life. A church recently in Chicago, and actually very encouraging that they did this. It does take quite a bit of self-awareness and also humility to do this, but after 20 years of doing church programs, and you guys know about church programs, right? Like, for example, we have a purity group for the men. So the men who struggle with purity, they go to the purity group, or at least they want to strive in purity. Uh, The women get coffee, or we have a marriage retreat. I all go to the marriage retreat. So a lot of times, Christianity just becomes attending programs. So I'm going to attend the programs, and that's really the extent of my faith. Well, a church basically did this for 20 years. It was the way, and it was a famous pastor, uh, uh, one who's writ- writ- written a lot of books in Christianity, Christian beliefs. And they realized after take- doing a survey that, that actually the programs produce no real change in people. As much as we do a weekend getaway or as much as we do a marriage program, or as much as we do a purity program, that those things are helpful and not bad. But if they're not coupled with daily spiritual discipline, yeah. Yeah. that they really don't actually bring about real change. Yeah. And so as a church, we're going after as helping each other do this personally and also collectively to go after spiritual disciplines with one another. And that is exactly what Ephesians 2 begins to talk about. And one of the most famous passages in the Bible, a passage that you're probably familiar with, especially if you're an evangelical of some kind, is Ephesians chapter 2. Let's begin reading there in verse 1. It says, as for you, Ephesians 2 verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our own flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you're keeping count, uh, halfway through Ephesians chapter 2, in the original languages, that's only three sentences. So we're taking it. You can kind of tell the author is definitely, ah, oh, he's emotionally vomiting sort of on, on us, right? He's just like, wow, oh, the current verses of his grace and the, and the kindness and the, the goodness. And so I always love when you can kind of feel the heart of the, of the author here. An incredible passage from Ephesians chapter 2 that really talks about uh, the problem the innate difficulty with spiritual disciplines is we go about as a church trying to really live those different lives to be people who don't just do the right thing, but want to do the right thing. Yeah. That desire that our actual desires and our thoughts actually are inclined toward pleasing God, that pleasing God is what we care about honestly and truly more than anything else, that that is our hope. That is our goal. And that we realize that salvation is not about going to heaven one day. It is about entering the kingdom of God now and living that life now. And I think sometimes we have to actually change our view of salvation. It is amazing how often we read passages. Uh, I read one this morning. It says, if you live like this, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And our first thought can be, well, that means I, if I live like this, I won't go to, go, to, go to heaven one day. That's not what it says. It says, inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah, go, yeah but go to heaven one day. No, no, it, does, it says nothing about heaven Inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom is God's will being lived out in the here and in the now. Now, don't get it twisted. Going to heaven one day is a really big part of what it is to be Christian. But sometimes we focus too much on, well, I guess I'll just wait in the by and by. And here we go. Life is hard now, but one day we'll make it to heaven. And that, I think, is a, is a corruption of the good news that, that, that traveled the world and changed the history of our, of our earth. Uh, is, and in fact, it may not be such a good news at all if, if there is nothing about a changed life. And so anyway, we see that there is a problem. There are three, actually. Sometimes people call this the trinity of evil. It sounds like kind of, it sounds kind of, um, yeah, sort of like a comic book or something, the trinity of evil. But there's three adversaries here in this passage. So it's like the rest. We, when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, right, we used to follow the ways of the world. A lot of times in our, in our encounter, in our fight against sin, and it is a fight. I think sometimes that's the first step is realizing that when we enter into the kingdom of God, that there will be a battle. That there will be later in the, uh, in the book of Ephesians, he says, the flaming arrows of the evil one are coming at you. Satan is going to bring his, his hordes against us. But one of the first things he does is the world is against us. The world and its institutions. We often don't think about growing in our faith but having to grow despite the enemy of the world. Yeah. We think about the, the, the institutions, the images, the messages in television, the messages from government, the messages from school, the messages from our jobs. The, the institutions of our world actually can be antithetical or can be a, a, an opponent and often are opponents of God. The other thing here we see is Satan, and we know, we know all about Satan. We, 
we're aware of that one. And then the last one is our own selves, our own desires and thoughts. And I love here it says, we used to walk among the evil people of the world, not just in the way what we did, but what does he say? In our desires and in our thoughts. That evil is not just about what you may do or not do, but evil is about what you might think or not think or what you might feel or not feel, that, that it does actually go deep into, our, into the recesses of our heart. And so when you read that, I don't know if you're like me, but you read that and you go, wow, A, that is, that is a daunting task. And sometimes we can struggle with even believing that it's possible, right? And this, we had a baptism a week ago, right? Brandon got baptized there at the river, which was incredible. And he's entered into this, this, this life this, with this pledge of a good conscience toward God of, hey, I'm going I'm to give, give it my all here as I crucify my past and strive to live for Jesus. But it can seem daunting. Who can really do that? Who can really be these new people? Uh, I spoke with a young man last week where he's, he's just, he's having a hard time because growing up, he grew up in a very Christian area. And, every, and because he's, he, he's not Christian, everyone told him, all his Christian friends told him he was going to hell. And that's kind of his sense of God. And that's like, that's not really a gospel. Nothing really good about that news, by the way. Like, uh, it's kind of bad news, actually. Uh, I have some bad news for you. It's not really the gospel. It's, I don't know what, uh, what the Greek is for bad news. Um, but the Greek for good news is gospel. But I don't know what the Greek for bad news is. But what, is, is that our good news? You just kind of like say something and then maybe we all can see each other in heaven one day. Is that the news that propelled the sinful woman? earlier that we just heard from, from Brandon and, and Kennedy to, to take her life into her own hands in Luke 7 and risk death just to show Jesus she loved her? Was that the good news that moved Paul to give up his entire life, to go knocking on every door in the Mediterranean, to be able to plant churches and places and for them for, to eventually kill him? Is that the good news that moved Peter to a place where he eventually was going to be headed by, in, in Rome for what he believed, that we might go to heaven one day? And so, there's a, and so all we've seen in, in the first chapter and a half of Ephesians is actually nothing about that. Notice he says, you're seated in the right, uh, at the right hand of, of Jesus, not in the future. What does he say? He says, now. You've been raised up to be at the right hand of Christ now. So it should influence your thinking now. And so I want to look today at one thing, the most important thing I think we can look at, because before we get into the practicals of what it is to follow Jesus, I think we have to assess first the motivation. And if we're talking about a changed life, that motivation better be stinking good. Because if the motivation is guilt or duty or uh, people pleasing, then surely we, we won't make it a week or a month or a year before we just we walk away for something that makes us you know, happier in that moment or more comfortable or that our husband or wife likes more or our kids like more. Or we'll just trade in God for our kids athleticism or our kids scholarship or something new. If it's going to be a changed life, it better be a deep motivator. But what are the motivators of life that really change us, that really actually move us? I think there are a few moments like that in our walk. But we have to first realize that we are in a spiritual battle, okay? We, and sometimes expectations are super important. Just having the expectation of like, yes, when you walk out of here, the, arrow, the, the arrows of the evil one, sure, are going to be coming at you. It is good to have our guard up. Right? And to know that we are, in, we are engaging in that great battle. Spiritual growth is really the daily reordering of desires. Um, every day is choices. Okay? And so if really becoming a Christian is just about conversion 
and we don't deal with the reality that every day we are faced with making choices, we often will realize that too, uh, too more often than not, we make the wrong choices. And I want to take, remember the trinity of evil, take the flesh. The flesh, your flesh uh, desires certain things, right? Like maybe I have the donut up there. Like you may, in your flesh, you may want a donut. And this is the definition of an addict, by the way. Somebody who thinks they need what they desire. I need that. And no one needs a donut, right? But I need it. If you need it, it could be an addiction. Uh, there are certain things that, for us, we, I need that thing. And that's actually the, 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 your biggest desire in your life is what you're addicted to. I need it now. I, and so every day we have this, or, this ordering of desires. And every day you are faced with dozens of choices about how to prioritize those desires. And I think we have to realize that more often than not, we make the wrong choice. We do. We, we, maybe it looks a bit like that, like where we can kind of have these, these, these priorities in our life. But spiritual growth is simply the reordering of priorities. And so if we're going to reorder our priorities, if you really are going to have your son go to church instead of his, the championship baseball game, of which he is the star third baseman, and if he doesn't show, they'll probably lose. If you're really going to make that choice, you better have a pretty good motivation. Sure. Otherwise, I don't think we're going to choose God. We have to realize, there's a great quote, uh, is that from Bill Hole says, in presenting this gospel, we have to remember that the mind of the flesh is hostile toward God. Human beings, right down to their muscles and bones, do not like God. That is something only a new life can redeem them from. I think realizing that in our natural selves, we will not make the choice of God. We've, we've proven that. And so we need, once again, this deep motivator to slap us upside the face so that we can actually realize, no, God is actually more important than the championship baseball game. And my son's going to be at church. And then people will go, that is crazy. You're nuts. You're wild. That's crazy. Just go to church at night or go to church online or, or, just, or just pray later. That is a nuts decision. And then you can say, no, that's, you know why it's a nuts decision? Because I'm a new person. I didn't used to make these choices, but now I do. And even in the room, we might be a little uncomfortable with that choice because that, that seems so maybe uh, alien to us. To, 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 to make a decision that is God-centered and God-first. So perhaps we better get to that motivation quick because I'm, I'm sensing a certain level of discomfort. <laughs> guys aren't like, hey man, preach it. What should I give up? Tell me. Give me another one. In the passage, this is the great grace passage. And sadly, a, a passage that has, been, that has been corrupted, I think, by Christianity. I remember in, in campus ministry sharing my faith a lot and and asking people to study the Bible or repent and these things. And often people would say, no, I don't need to do those things. I'm saved by grace. And that comes from this passage, by the way, the idea of I'm saved by grace. But what is grace? And what is it for? He mentions it like four times in this passage. What is grace? And often I think for grace, we often think of guilt. Grace is for my guilt. Oh, thank goodness for God's grace. I don't need to be guilty. Or it's for my sin. Or saved by grace. It's a salvation word. Oh, grace, that's what saves me. I can't do anything to earn it. God saves me from uh, all those things. God is, he's, he's centered my life. And, and sometimes even sadly, grace is a credit card. Grace is just a license to sin. Oh, thank goodness for God's grace. I can sort of choose for myself all week and do what I want. And then, oh, God's grace. Woo, 
we'll sing a couple songs on Sunday that remind me of uh, God's grace, and then I can just go back to being who I want to be in my natural self. But it's gra- grace is supposed to be this powerful thing, but it doesn't seem to be that. It seems to be this kind of weak, wimpy word. I never liked the word grace growing up because it was so wimpy. I don't, I don't want the wimpy grace. Like, no, let's, let's go be and do and duty and honor. And I was, it inspired me. That's my own issues. But we got to get a real sense of what grace actually means. Because for this author, for Paul, he says we are saved by grace. He actually says in here, uh, it, the NIV changes it, but if you read it in the ESV, it says that great love with which he loved us. That sentence doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's like, that great love with which he loved us. I mean, he is like struggling to even emphasize love, mercy, grace. Like, what is this thing that is supposed to wake us up? And most of the time, we just hear from other people in the church, I just don't get grace. Just don't get it. Wish I knew grace better. Wish I understood grace. Then we sort of throw up our hands and carry on. But I think we must get to know grace because it is more than enough of a powerful motivator to be able to allow us to live this life that seems so alien to us and so scary and so daunting that we need something within us that is going to launch us into this life where we're just flying and going, how am I doing this? This is incredible. I didn't really, I'm just flying here. But it's, we need something to launch us into that life. And God has given us more than enough to be able to do that. So for just a moment, let's take a look at what grace meant to them. Would it, grace today has a religious meaning, usually. Would it surprise you to know that grace to them had nothing to do with religion? Grace was a word used outside of religion, outside of faith. Grace was a social word. And because things back then, we've talked about this a little bit, but because resources were scarce back then, uh, in, the, in these times, you needed a system of favors to be able to get you through life. It was a currency. We don't do that today. You know, the idea of it's not, it's not what you know, it's who you know. That's kind of actually usually an excuse for like uh, someone who got their job because their dad owns the company. And it's not really an encouraging thing. We live in a meritocracy where I earned it and I didn't, I, got it, I never got a loan. And I, I started my own company and I am a self-made woman. And that's something that we honor and respect in our society. If someone gives you a favor, it's like embarrassing. Like, no, I don't, I don't need help. I don't need a favor. I don't need, I'm on my own. And that's kind of what we, people are even uncomfortable receiving help. But... In a time when you, would, you could just die because you didn't have help from others, Seneca says, who are we if we are not together in this? If we try to isolate, we will all surely die. And this idea of like, if, you're, if you didn't have the resources to build a house for your family, if your house burned down, there's no insurance. Like you have to find somebody to help you, somebody with money or lumber to help you. And you're basing your, enti- your family's existence of being homeless on somebody else being kind to you. And if they're not kind to you, your family is destitute, home, and you might have to sell your kids into slavery. That's what people did often because they couldn't afford, so you- or even sell yourselves into slavery. Right? That's pretty common. About a third of the Roman Empire is slaves because people got into debt. They couldn't afford. They couldn't afford to live, so they just sold themselves into slavery. Right? So it's very common. And so there was something called grace, a word not used by the Bible, not used in scripture, but used by the Romans and the Greeks. This word of grace was a, it meant three things really, but the first thing it meant was a generous act. So let's say your house did burn down and let's say you have three kids and you're, you have a wheat farm, wheat harvest is coming up. Your house burns down. Let's just say it's Andrew. Andrew's log cabin and his family, right? His log cabin burns down. 
And he's gonna, he faces homelessness. He faces destitution if he doesn't have somebody help. So he reaches out to a, to a person. He banks on that favor. So he asks for Nika McLaughlin because he's, she is in a great place. Uh, she's in the upper class of society, as it turns out. So thanks for Nika. And, uh, and so Andrew maybe approaches her or maybe she hears about the fire. So she says, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the lumber and I'm going to give you this. I'm going to help you rebuild your home. And then maybe Andrew's, and maybe she even realizes, actually, I know that rebuilding the home is coming right during the wheat harvest and you can't pick the food that's going to help you survive. So I'm actually going to supply people to help you bring in the harvest. And so this, so grace is a generous, is three things. It's a generous, but firstly, it's a generous gift. Okay. The second thing is the reception of that gift. Andrew has to say yes. Now, in this case, I think he would be able to say, yes, of course, I will accept that gift. Except everyone who accepted a gift of grace, right? It meant something. It meant the possibility and the high likelihood of a long-term friendship. That it was, no act of grace was isolated. That this act right here, they were the reception of the gift, and then Andrew would undoubtedly respond with some kind of gratitude. This threefold dance is a dance of graces. The Greeks talked about the dance of graces, and it was about this idea of three women who would dance, and they would take each other's place, and they would dance, right? One is, gener- one is the generous gift, one is the reception of the gift, and one is, the, is, the, is gratitude. And they're dancing, and they're going back and forth, and they're, it's this like grace, is, grace always implied a relationship. Always. Seneca even says, why do the sisters dance hand in hand in a ring which returns upon itself? For the reason that a gift passing in its course from hand to hand returns nevertheless to the giver. The beauty of the whole is destroyed if the course is anywhere broken. Which means that if Andrew receives the house, receives the help, gets the wheat harvest and never is grateful, he breaks the dance and he highly offends the giver. And in all likelihood, Renika will not only not give to him ever again, but tell all of her upper class friends just how ungrateful he was. And any act of grace heading toward Andrew's family is highly unlikely. And he is now out of the dance. Ingratitude, ungratefulness was the best way. Seneca actually says it was the highest sin one could imagine because it ruined something that everyone depended so dearly on. Here's Andrew's cabin burning, right? I'm fine. I'm fine. I know it's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty lot. A little visual, right? But the beautiful thing about the dance of grace is that the dance of grace, it didn't have to be. Uh, it wasn't an investment. One of the things about grace that, that is important is that Renika's act of of giving the, the gift to Andrew. It was always supposed to be a free act. Always supposed to be a free act, not an investment. For example, Renika would never choose to give to Andrew based on, his, based on his ability to pay her back. In fact, Cicero says that when choosing someone to give to, it was much better to choose someone who was grateful than someone who could actually pay you back. That gratitude was actually a better gift than money. That the gratitude actually meant more to society. A, a, a citizens of people who were grateful was better than people who could actually physically pay you back. And so just imagine how that act of kindness, utter kindness, changes Andrew's family. Let's say he's not ungrateful. 
which I think is highly likely because it's Andrew. He's a great guy. So Andrew and his family are not ungrateful, but they don't have the money. To, they have no money. They're like, they're lower class. So what do they do? So they build the house. And you know what? He has an idea. He says, you know what we're going to do is we're going to name the house. We're going to name it the McLaughlin home because without the McLaughlins, we would be dead. And maybe his, maybe his son has an idea. Oh, you know what else we could do, dad, is we can actually write in every room in the, in, we can etch it in the wood. Maybe a little, a little quote or a little memory or a, a little, maybe, maybe even a picture. Maybe we could have a picture of the McLaughlin family. Maybe, and maybe his daughter says, you know what we could do? We could have him over for dinner once a week just to say thanks. And so you could see how the gift of grace always responded in grace. And then it began this dance of back and forth, generosity, gratitude, generosity, gratitude, which is why grace always led to a relationship. And so in, and this is, this is actually really cool, in the, in the town square, uh, it's, called, it's called salutatio, which is sal, uh, salutations. So in reality, Renika would never associate with Andrew, right? Obviously. So <laughs> never associate with Andrew, upper class, lower class. So in the square, what would happen is it was, it was a salute. It was a hail, right? The Romans would hail, hello, hello, hail. And so in walking, and what would happen, and this would blow Andrew's mind, as, as he's walking and Renika is with her upper class friends, Renika would look at him and, and Andrew would freak out because all this, they're going, is, is she saluting to you? And he goes, yeah, hey, it's Renika. Yeah, we know each other. Yeah, it turns out she actually helped me out with the helmet. Anyway, yeah, so, and he's lighting, he's, he's lit up, he's beaming, he's excited. He's like, she said hi to me. Everyone's like, how does she know you? That's incredible. Like, and, and so you can see how this one act of grace has now transformed everything about him. That act of grace has turned him into a grateful person, right? But not only that, what's going to happen to the act of grace? That his kids are now grateful. His kids are thinking of ideas. How can we help? How can we show gratitude to the McLaughlins? What can we do? They're now actually trying to be grateful, and that this idea of they gave it to us out of their own free will, out of the goodness of their heart, how can we not respond with everything that we have? Yeah. This is grace. Yes. You can see why Paul liked this word and used it to relate to God. Mm-hmm. You know, the passage here says that we were once deserving of wrath. That's God's wrath. And we were, we were dead in our way of living. We were dead. You know, it was very unlikely for anyone back then to give to an ingrate, an ungrateful person. Because it just, it, 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 was, it would ruin the whole idea of reciprocity. And so, but every now and then, Seneca says this, every now and then, a generous hearted person may even choose a known ungrateful person. Even someone who has previously shown or previously failed to show gratitude. Repeated acts of kindness may yet awaken a slower, hard heart to show gratitude and act nobly. One of the things about, for us, understanding grace is that you must first understand your own sin. The only way for Andrew to really be grateful to Renika was to see the depth of how, how much he truly needed help. He was, he was hopeless. As long as... Andrew just needs a little tweaking here, a little tweaking there. He's never going to show gratitude commensurate to the act of grace given to him. So this is why we have to, we have to be able to see with clear eyes the sins that we've committed and to know them. And as uncomfortable as that may be, I encourage a lot of you to study the Bible with somebody and talk about those sins. Confess those sins, the sins that make you squirm even now to think about. Or like, what will I? But here's the thing. 
is we, we, we praise a, a God of grace, right? So sharing the sin is not like, oh no, I'm, I'm no good and I'm not gonna make it to heaven one day. Get that weird theology out of here. That is not of the Bible. We have to know our sin. If we, if we do not know our sin, we cheapen grace. We cheapen it. It doesn't mean anything to us if, if, it, if, if it didn't come at a great cost. And I had this picture of a catapult. A rock in a catapult, a boulder, does not have to worry about how far it will go, right? All it need worry is to go back as far as it can. If a rock could talk or a boulder, it might say, pull me back as far as you can. Because once you pull that boulder back and launch it, it's soaring. So the more that we can understand the depth of our sin, deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and truer and truer confession, honesty, journaling, prayer, Bible reading, meditation, the more we can truly know how much you deserve the wrath of God and how you deserve the depths of hell. Oh, there goes Andrew. Right? It's like, why is Andrew always reading his Bible? Why is he always praying? Why is he always, wow, look at all the good he does for God. How did he do that? It must be because he's incredible. No, because he understands what God's done for him. The most powerful motivator that we can have for a changed life is gratitude. Is gratitude. And if we are not living that changed life, it's probably an indication that we are not grateful. And if we're not grateful, it's because we don't know our sin. If we don't know our sin, we've got to ask ourselves why. Why are we avoiding that confrontation with our sin? I love this, this verse from Ephesians 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace. And I want to substitute the word grace. I'm just going to say gift of generosity. For it is by his gift of generosity that you have been saved. For it is, for it is by his gift of generosity that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God and not by works so that no one can boast. Gratitude changes lives. Even the word faith, by the way, was a, was a word used after a certain amount of time had passed between a patron and a client. So let's say Renika and Andrew, years later, let's say Renika was running for public office or she, she needed Andrew's help for some reason. So, she, so Andrew realizes this is a chance to pay back my gratitude. So he goes to Renika and he says, hey, I want to campaign for you. I want to make sure your name gets out there because I'm just so, you know, I, I love you. You know, I'm just so grateful for all the stuff you've done for me. So, so Andrew's excited about this idea. And, and, as, and as, she, as she thinks about that idea, she thinks, can I trust him? And trust is just a word for faith. And so she would actually ask and ask her friends. They would say, do you have faith in this person? Is there, is there faith? Is there good faith? You say, yeah, good, good faith with, with Andrew. There's good faith there. Because yes, he has invited me over. Yes, he's shown great gratitude. Um, and actually our families have become quite close over the years because of what's happened. And so there's actually a trust there. So you can imagine both these words, grace, faith, they both imply relationship yeah. with Jesus, with God. Yeah. And so that is a powerful thing because that inevitably goes to us thinking of what has God done for us? I think I have one more. Yes, this is a, a beautiful one. The greater the favor the more earnestly we must express ourselves, resorting to such compliments as, I shall never be able to repay you with my gratitude, but at any rate, I shall not stop ceasing from declaring your name, that I am, uh, declaring everywhere that I am unable to repay it. So even here, Seneca says, people who didn't have enough money, their job to, in order to show gratitude 
was to increase the fame. So Andrew, everywhere he went, in gratitude, would be talking about the McLaughlins. He'd be at the store, and he'd be like, would you like some more uh, uh, wood, or would you like some more? I don't know what you buy at a store in the Roman Empire. But he's, if he's buying something, and he goes, yes, I would. Actually, wood? That reminds me of somebody. It reminds me of the McLaughlins. Did you hear about my fire? My log cabin burned down? No, I didn't, I didn't hear about it. Oh my goodness, it burned down and I was hopeless. We were all hopeless. My family, I have three kids and they, we had not, no other option and I had exhausted all other opportunities and there's no reason for her to even talk to me. Yesterday in the, in the court, actually she was walking by, Renika that is, she's walking by and she sees me and she saluted me. Can you imagine? Me. She saluted me of all people anyway. So she helps me. She really rebuilds the log cabin and not just that, she helps with the wheat harvest. She helps to get people. So now we're not just doing well, we're doing great. They come over every week and so this wood is actually to put a, an addition on my home because but Woody, we wouldn't even have the home. Did I mention the McLaughlins? We wouldn't even have a home if they didn't save us. Oh my goodness, they're amazing. And the clerk would probably be like, please stop. Please shut up at this point. But the reality is, is that when you are launched by grace, it's not, hey, you should share your faith more. I don't really want to. I don't know why. I don't believe in that strategy. I don't. Oh, that is so sad. Uh, what? You got to come to midweek. I don't like midweek. Uh, you got to come to midweek, but I don't want to come to midweek, but I, I don't like it, I don't, but I do like it. But, oh, ouch. That is not the life God's called for us. I don't want to have a quiet time. I like, this, I like these quiet times more. I like this church more. I like that church more. These things make me happy. When we are grateful, it's not about what, what we need. It's about how can I increase the fame of the one who gave generously? How, of, you're, you're asking what? God wants me to serve again that I was hungry? I've gone six times, but heck, seven, seven times. Let's do it because you know what? God saved me. I was dead in transgressions. I was done. I was dead in the water. Did you know me back then? You might have not thought I was sinful, but I was really sinful. Like pride. Have you heard of pride? Oh my gosh, pride was so bad for me. Let me tell you why. And like if, the more we can know our sin, the more we can be grateful for Jesus. And it's less about go do good works. And at the very end of this passage, he says, go do good works. He says, you've been created to go do good works. And we go, what are those good works? But when you're grateful, those good works just, boop, they pop out of the air. You, you know what to do or how to do it when you're grateful. And your kids will have ideas and your friends will have ideas. So you know what we can do for God this week? I have an idea about how we can please God this week. It's kind of a crazy, crazy idea. But what if, what if we came together, families, and we had a family devotional together? I think that would be a great way to honor God. Okay, let's do it. Have you done it before? No. Have you done it before? No. Are your kids crazy? Mine are too. Let's do it anyway. I think, I think just the, even though we can't repay with much, let's just, let's just try to increase the fame of God. And you can see how everything you do, and then your kids see it, and they go, why is mom like that? She is nuts. Why is dad like that? And it's not about reading, knowing the right thing or doing the right thing. It is simply about being grateful. And so many problems go away when you are just grateful. <clears throat> And that is my challenge for us as a church. Challenge. Leave here with a desire to get to know that deeper. To get to know why. Why am I struggling to talk about my sin, to confess my sin? Because the reality is, is when you enter into that grace with God, that relationship back and forth, right? You actually see ways that he's, he's still giving. God still gives. God did not just give in the cross. He still gives. And when your eyes are open of, oh, there God goes again, giving it. He gave, oh my gosh, we got a raise. Or, oh my goodness, my kid got a good grade. Or, oh wow, I saw this thing and God is still giving. We get, now we got, okay, we got to one up God here. Okay, let's, let's do it. How do we really let God know we're grateful? And it's just this, it's this life that I think, I know I want to live. And, and it's a life that I think is, is infectious to others. But it, it begins with first knowing that we needed Jesus. 
And surely the great Isaac Watts was right in his hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, that were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a gift far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And that if we simply understand the depth of the gift given to us, were the whole realm of nature mine, it would be a gift far too small, but yet I could give God my whole life and everything. And that is why we are saved by grace and not the law, not morality, not doing the right things, not brownie points for how many consecutive quiet times you have. He is saved by the generous act of God. Let's close out with, with knowing that we know that the battle is coming our way, but Satan knows that the battle is also coming his way. And we're taking up arms against him. You better be ready. He ain't going down without a fight and we have to, we've already won the battle, but he ain't going away too easy. And so we have to be able to take up arms together now yeah. in gratitude. The grateful person can never, never, ever be affronted. Even if Andrew was, you know, if, if he was put down by other upper class elites, he could say, I'm going to go talk to Renika about this. <laughs> and then she'd be like, yo, you don't talk to him like that. Okay. We've entered into a grace relationship. There's a lot of faith there. And you, you mess with him, you mess with me. Which is why in Acts 9, Jesus says to Paul, why, Paul, are you persecuting me? Was Paul persecuting Jesus? He's persecuting the church. But Jesus says, you mess with the church, you mess with me. We have entered into a grace relationship. You do not touch them. You do not mess with them. We are seated at God's right hand now. We do not simply wait for that new life to be able to act in us. Through the word, through the spirit, through our own lives and the lives of the church, we bring fruit and faith and repentance to their minds and their hearts. Spiritual formation and discipleship then become natural responses to the gift of life in the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God becomes the texture and the energy of our spiritual formation in Christ. Don't worry about the spiritual disciplines for now. I think we have to make sure that we are, we are grateful. Then we will be excited to exercise the spiritual disciplines in any way we can. And we're going to close out with a hymn, with a song, that I think encapsulates grace beautifully. And it says the words, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Amen. God be the glory.